where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book Lighthouse Faith and the newly released Light for Today devotional. Well, love is in the air this week, celebrating Valentine's Day this week, and pretty sure more than a few people got engaged on the day we celebrate love and relationships, and of course, the ultimate expression of love, covenantal marriage. But there's something askew in how we've come to view this union, as we've been kind of sold a line about what makes a good one. Um, you know, the idea that everyone has a soulmate, or on the other hand, that marriage is not even necessary. After all, it's just a piece of paper. And the lie generally has come from elites at universities and, and media who tout diversity in relationship in, in relationships but who overwhelmingly will answer that you don't need to be married to have a child but in their own lives uh, they don't really live that out live that sentiment out and of course the fact is marriage a stable marriage is good for individuals who enter into it good for children that they bring into the relationship and good for communities, cities, and the country altogether. Now, a new book shows how modern society has come out against marriage when the data actually show marriage is one of the things in life that we should be pursuing for our own personal happiness and for well-adjusted and happy children, for financial stability. It's just a long list of, of pros in marriage. So, so this is, uh, so says Brad Wilcox. He's a Professor of Sociology at the University of Virginia, a future um, a Freedom Fellow at the Institute for Family Studies and a Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. His new book is Get Married, Why Americans Must Define the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilizations. Welcome, Brad. Great to be here, Lauren. Boy, that's pretty strong statement <laughs> yeah, right there. It's it, it's an assertive title. <laughs> yeah, so. it very much is. Boy, that, that gets your, that gets your <laughs> yeah. attention. Save America. Yeah. Get married. Right, right. Why is, I mean, what what makes marriage, um, well, first of all, why do you say that marriage is one of the biggest problems we have? Um, you know, it's it, because it's our problems today are really rooted in the fact that marriage is collapsing. Yeah. So I, you know, actually I live and work in the shadow of Thomas Jefferson's Monticello and sort of Thomas Jefferson was the founder of my institution, UVA, University of Virginia. Yeah. And he's obviously known for the declaration, life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and on three key kind of outcomes related to that in terms of life what we're seeing basically is you know record deaths of despair i'm talking about you know alcohol related deaths talking about drug overdoses talking about suicides um up and up and up in america unfortunately um, when it comes to liberty a lot of folks think about in terms of the american dream and we know that there are too many places across america where the american dream is out of reach for poor kids they're much you know more likely in these particular places across america to stay poor as they move you know into adulthood not have this rags to riches thing which mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. you know would would valorize and i think most importantly it comes to the pursuit of happiness you know, what jefferson calls the pursuit and we're seeing um across different data sets from gallup to what's called the general social survey Happiness rates in America are falling, okay? And on all three of these things, Lauren, when it comes to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, the American dream, death of despair, and happiness, the the number one factor, according to some recent research, you know, different scholars, is the retreat from marriage. You know, the fact mm. that marriage is in, in decline, what I call the closing of the American heart. And so if we want to address, you know, a lot of these big challenges facing our country, we need to figure out ways to reopen the American heart to dating, mating, marriage and and family formation. And who is at fault for this? Because when you talk about marriage, is it the men who don't want to get married or is it women pursuing careers, delaying marriage? 
What's really the problem here? Well, I think part of the problem is what I call kind of Midas mindset. And this is more of a kind of, to be frank, a kind of more of an elite problem um, for folks who are kind of more in the middle, upper classes, young adults. And they're under the misimpression today that sort of what it's all about basically is education, money, especially work. You know, that's kind mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. The, the, the real big focus. And there's a lot of polling that kind of backs up that, that point in terms of they think that's what's going to lead to happiness. I think for a lot of working class and poor young adults, it's more about kind of the men not measuring up, not working full time, not kind of having their stuff together, not being kind of sufficiently responsible. Um, and that's a, that's a kind of a different set of problems for a lot of working class and poor couples that I'm seeing in both my personal interviews with couples and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know adults and then just the data itself. So those are kind of, and then we could sort of wrap, you know, we could talk about secularization. We could talk about the way in which the state penalizes marriage, for working class couples. Um, you know, we could talk about any number of sort of broader. Um, so there are a lot of little tentacles that yes, are kind of leading are to this. this yep. I'm interested about the state, though, because how does the state discourage marriage or actually penalize marriage? Yeah. So my colleague at the Institute for Family Studies, Dr. Wendy Wang, did uh, a study sort of showing that about 10 percent of adults who are not married in the sort of lower half of the income spectrum indicated that one big factor for them was that, you know, marriage would kind of lead to a decline in some kind of benefit. So I talked, for instance, to a waitress recently who was at an event in Charlottesville that I was holding on marriage. She heard the topic and then mentioned to me afterwards that she and her partner, who was a chef in the in the restaurant and <clears throat> had not gotten married. They have two kids together. So we're kind of talking about that. And she said, well, it's really about Medicaid. So both this woman and her two kids are on Medicaid in Virginia, and were they to marry and combine their income, she and her partner, their income would just rise above that threshold where they would lose access to Medicaid. So it's kind of an example of where couples on Medicaid, on food stamps, sometimes their income tax credit, Often, and it's in a working class. These are these are folks who are working. You know, yeah, Um, yeah. They're not just just subsisting on government benefits. Um, but, you know, ex- healthcare is a big deal. And so um, that's part of their calculus. And their- well, why did the government kind of go to this sort of lowest common denominator in terms of, you know, benefits? And be- I know there were a lot of people who years ago who protested that they were being penalized for being single. And then so sure. the, so the, well, so but, the knee-jerk reaction was to penalize marriage. No, I think so. The issue is that we've had a kind of long tradition of kind of, as opposed to Sweden, which gives everyone like, you know, all these benefits, we've kind of targeted our benefits at lower-income Americans, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. But we haven't made an adjustment for kind of marriage versus single. We unfortunately actually have done this for income taxes. So a lot of income taxes basically are set at different levels for married Americans and mm-hmm. for single Americans mm-hmm. to minimize marriage penalties when it comes to paying your income taxes. But we're basically kind of looking out for the folks who are already the most married in America. And when it comes to all these means tested programs like Medicaid, food stamps, <clears throat> housing benefits, there's been really no serious effort to tackle these marriage penalties that tend to discourage marriage now, particularly among working class families. So I think that would be something we could do is to kind of take that same energy that we focused on income taxes that benefit really affluent Americans when it comes to marriage, and then look at how we can revamp our means-tested mm-hmm. programs to make them stop penalizing marriage. You know, you bring out in your book um, and several articles about how the military actually benefits marriage. And there are more married 
in the military because they actually benefit. Can you explain what the military does that perhaps the federal government should do to the general public? When you talk about marriage and, and the state, you know, Lauren, a lot of people, especially in the D.C. area, say it's they're kind of like naysayers. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. there's nothing we can do to strengthen marriage. You know, there's no law, there's no policy that's going to really, you know, help us turn the corner on the marriage front. What they don't realize is that the largest federal agency in America has basically implicitly a very, or explicitly, a very pro-marriage policy. So if you're cohabiting, you know, in the U.S. military, your cohabiting partner does not qualify you for anything extra in terms of, you know, housing or some kind of allowance or <clears throat> or, or health care, right? By contrast, if you and your partner are married, you're going to get better housing, you know, she, typically it's a she, is going to get health care and often some other benefits as well. So there's an explicitly pro-marriage policy that's embedded in how the military does things. And when you look at who is ever married in America or who's currently married in America, for guys who've served or are currently serving, white, black, college educated, especially less educated, much more likely if they're, you know, you know veterans or current military <clears throat> Um, to be uh, to be married, so th- it's clearly the case that when government is more marriage friendly, um, we can see you know the dial turn in the direction of marriage. But why um, this idea? Uh, you bring out in another article about the myth of this the elites that they actually in their own lives promote marriage stability for their children but then preach something else. Yeah, it's striking whether it's professors or journalists or Hollywood moguls, you know, um, a lot of the folks who are kind of commanding the heights of our culture today, Lauren, Mm -hmm. kind of would tend to either publicly discount, um, you know, devalue or just kind of minimize the importance of marriage and kind of whether it's a school superintendent who kind of does nothing to advance, you know, marriage in the in public school, you know, family life education, or it's, you know, a, a journalist who kind of, publishes article, an article about poverty never touches on family structure, for instance, or incarceration never, you know, addresses the family angle. Um, or someone like Reed Hastings, who I talk about in the book, you know, obviously the co-founder of Netflix. A lot of Netflix programming, I would say, is in particularly family friendly, and in particular had this this critical award-winning movie, Marriage Story, that tells a false story about marriage in a sense, because it's kind of giving us a portrait, a very negative kind of dystopian portrait of this elite couple moving from New York to LA, getting divorced, you know, all that stuff. And yet in in real life, what mm. we see is that Reed Hastings in his own autobiography talks about how he and his wife were having trouble over his, I think his, his work schedule. <laughs> they went to a counselor, they worked through that trouble and they've been like married, I think more than 30 years. They've got two kids, you know, and obviously they're benefiting, you know, financially from staying together and otherwise, you know, so here you have like this Hollywood mogul who kind of is living right in a sense and then talking left or kind of producing movies that sort of talk left about marriage and family. And this pattern is repeated over and over again across many sectors of our country, unfortunately. Why is that? Is there, are they still living on data that says, oh, most people are getting divorced? Or So I think there's a couple of things happening here. So I think one thing is that implicitly, I mean, if you're prudent, sort of if you have the long-term view, um, even if you're obviously you know progressively minded, you kind of have some recognition, right, that mm-hmm. getting married and staying married is going to be better for you financially. It's going to be better for you probably emotionally, you know, and it's going to be a lot better for your kids. If you want your yeah. kids to go to UVA where I teach or, or Harvard or Stanford or whatever, Duke, you know, well, I mean, it's going to be a lot easier for them to 
to thrive in school if, if you can kind of keep it together. So I think that's part of it. There's a kind of a prudential value to marriage that they still kind of recognize. But in terms of why they're not saying that in public, well, I mean, people obviously are rec- you know, cognizant of the fact that you know, there's drama in most people's lives, um, in their friends' lives, their parents' lives, um, and you don't want to kind of come across as you know, a jerk um, yeah, about marriage. Yeah. But it's also the case, too, that just kind of this progressive idea, I call it the family diversity myth, wants us to believe that every single family form is equally valuable Mm. and that what really matters for families is love and money and love in any kind of configuration, right? Right, right. Hearing a lot of polyamory today from the media. Um, (laughs) And, you know, the kids just, all they need is love and money. And if you have those two things, it'll all be, you know, hunky-dory. No recognition that number one, the data points us in a very different direction. So what I see, I think this is the most striking statistic in my book, for boys who are being raised today in America, they're more likely to go to prison or jail than graduate from college if they're being raised outside of an intact home with you know with their mom and dad at home. And by contrast, boys who are being raised by <clears throat> Their, you know, uh, intact, you know, married parents are about four times more likely to graduate from college than they are to spend any time in prison or in jail. So, you know, marriage matters and the family diversity myth is false. Um, And it's also the case, too, that kids get more love on average Mm -hmm. from married parents. They get more attention, more affection, more constructive discipline, and they get more money. I mean, family instability, you know, moving in and out of different relationships, getting divorced, getting remarried or not getting married in the first place. That's super expensive. Uh, you know, the old phrase cheaper to keep her. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's it, true. It's pretty trite, yeah. but it's actually true. And so we see, for instance, for adults, I mean, there was this crazy story in Bloomberg, the financial news service was kind of saying that women who don't get married, don't have kids are richer totally false. What we see is that married women have 10 times, stably married women have 10 times the assets compared to their female peers who are divorced or never married in their 50s, kind of getting closer to retirement. So for both women and men, there's no question that kind of getting married and staying married pays huge dividends. What about religious faith? Because from a Christian perspective, um, and I know you, you're Catholic and, um, you know, I was raised Protestant, but from we understood marriage as a religious institution that God designed male and female in, um, in a covenantal marriage and that would create children and be the refuge and the, you know, security for children and that we grow into stability. So, but, but with the entrance of same-sex marriage, marriage has become redefined as sort of an adult institution for adult happiness. How has that kind of contributed to this idea of diversity in marriage and anything goes because nobody wants to offend anybody. So I think the family diversity theory is is rooted, you know, both in that issue of just kind of, but just a, a deeper current of kind of American individualism and mm-hmm. kind of being non-judgmental. And, okay. and part like the divorce revolution obviously is part and parcel of that that really took hold in the 70s. So kind of in the wake of all of these family changes, you know, there's this kind of pressure to sort of stress sort of the value of being tolerant towards a bunch of different family structures. But you mentioned the sort of the faith piece. And I think one of the striking things there is there was this piece in the New Yorker that was suggesting that Christian men were basically porn-addled, 
Um, the Christian wives were twice as likely to divorce their husbands over pornography. Just kind of painting a very dystopian mm-hmm, portrait of mm-hmm. the sort of faith and family connection. And this, I mean, it, and it is true that for Christian men, you know, if they are using pornography, it is more of an issue for them and for their wives. You know, right, no, right. Big, you know, no surprise there. But what this New Yorker story completely neglected to talk about was that overall, number one, Christian men who are active churchgoers, for instance, are less likely to be using pornography. Mm. And then secondly, that Christian couples who attend church together have markedly more sex than <laughs> secular couples. This was the most surprising thing, I think, and for the adults you know, that I came across in the research for this new book. So I find that about 65% of couples who attend church together have sex at least once a week, Wow! compared to less than half of couples who are secular, who don't attend church at all. Um, you know, huge surprise for me. So there's a way in which I think religion by fostering commitment, <clears throat> also by fostering an ethic of kind of mutual generosity, um, and other things, you know, kind of norms about, uh, fidelity just creates a context where people kind of feel safer and more secure. And that then tends to induce more physical intimacy for couples. And we also see too, when it comes to, um, sexual satisfaction, that there is basically, you know, a 20 percentage point gap in favor of religious couples when it comes to their odds of being very happy with their sex mm-hmm. lives. So there's just a lot of, I think, false media coverage out there about, again, religion and family that's kind of giving us a distorted portrait. And we see not just when it comes to sex, when it comes to marital happiness, when it comes to divorce, that people who attend religious services, whether they're Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, whatever, um, and are embedded in communities that tend to prioritize family and marriage on average. We know there are exceptions mm-hmm, obvious, mm-hmm. in the media. There are obviously exceptions that we've all kind of can think about here, right? People who are religious and have you know, done bad things or had bad marriages. But on average, what we see is that religious couples are more likely to be flourishing today in their marriages. Are religious couples less likely to have the sort of the idea of a soulmate in their in their purview in terms of what marriage really is? Because a soulmate is, listen, my sister and I used to joke when we, we grew up and read the tabloids about some Hollywood, you know, actress who found her soulmate and we went well the clock's ticking on that relationship <laughs> so i mean are religious people less likely to just kind of focus on some some grand illusion of fantasy man who's going to be perfect and, and and fulfill all their happiness i think somewhat although it's interesting you know when you talk to um religious folks i would say especially you know evangelical protestants i mean that evangelical protestantism is a very kind of you know uh, emotional faith. Mm-hmm. And so I think for some folks, there's a way in which they kind of like connect that to a more soulmate view of marriage. Okay. Um, and so we do see that kind of practicing Catholics are a little bit less likely to get divorced, I think in part because they have, you know, less of that kind of emotional approach to faith and life than, than evangelical Christians do. But yeah, in general, I think religious folks are less likely to sort of see marriage in terms of this soulmate, the kind of this intense emotional, this intense romantic connection, and this expectation is kind of the perfect fit, perfect person for, you know, you, and there's going to be kind of no real tensions, you know, in your relationship. Um, and then also I think the soulmate model and probably the best model of this in sort of the literary world is eat, pray, love by Liz Gilbert. And mm-hmm. she kind of has a very soulmate approach to love moving from one marriage and then one relationship to another across the course of both uh, the book and then her life more generally. So that's, a, that's, that's an example of this, um, in practice. It doesn't tend to work out very well in terms of divorce, but I think probably even more surprisingly is that 
what I find in my book, and I write about this for Wall Street Journal, is that people who have more what I call the family first model, mm. where they realize that, yeah, marriage is about romance, and you've got to make an effort, I think especially husbands, to kind of keep the sparks alive. Um, Hear that, husbands? Yes. Just want you to know that. Date nights are very key, so this is Valentine's Day. Um, but um, but it's more than just the, the date nights and, and, and the flowers and the romance. It's about recognizing that your kids need you, right? Mm-hmm that your kin, maybe your older parents or older in-laws need you to kind of stick together and stay the course. Um, and then financially, as we said before, you're going to be just in much better shape if you, um, you and your family, if you keep things together. So couples who have a family first orientation to marriage is kind of a, you know, a thicker, more well-rounded view of marriage, not just focused on feelings are surprising. I think for some people, um, surprisingly more likely to be happily married mm-hmm. because, they just have a more realistic model of what marriage is all about. And they're not just fixated on having that continual sense of like the butterflies in your stomach. You know, the Taylor Swift, uh, Travis Kelsey relationship comes to mind. Um, everybody's thinking, oh my gosh, both of them, incredibly good looking, incredibly wealthy, incredibly successful. This is what marriage must be like. This must be the perfect relationship. What would your view on their relationship be? Well, you know, I talk about the song Lover at the beginning of my Wall Street Journal piece. And, you know, it's a, it's a very evocative, I think, piece, I mean, song by, you know, Taylor Swift about romance. And, um, but it sort of there's a line about kind of getting to forever and ever in that in that song Lover by Taylor Swift. And and that's the challenge, I think, for romantics is like if you have these really super high expectations about love and marriage through a romanticized lens, it can be hard to last forever and ever because again, the butterflies fly away. Now they can come back in marriage, and that's what date nights are for, right? <laughs> Keep those sparks alive in your marriage, your relationship. But you know, there are times that are tough in marriage, you know, where your spouse is annoying you or where there's a big conflict over something important or, or where maybe your spouse is depressed or, or sick, you know? Yeah. And in that context, you know, um, maybe they've got cancer, whatever it might be, right? You know, it's it's not the the way it was when you were kind of first dating. And so I think if you, again, have the family first mindset, then you can navigate all these challenges successfully. And so at the end of my Wall Street Journal piece, I basically say, well, if, you know, Taylor and Travis get together, I'm hoping that, you know, they can have this more family first model in mind and not the sort of soulmate model in mind. Yeah. Let's take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. We'll be right back with Brad Wilcox talking about his book, Get Married. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, read a book, show up for a friend? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash lighthouse today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash lighthouse. Betterhelp.com slash lighthouse. Okay, we're back um, with Lighthouse Faith Podcast talking about a fascinating book by Professor Brad Wilcox called um, Get Married. One of the things I wanted to talk about, too, is a lot of young professionals or middle-aged professionals, it's about two kids. Does it make a difference if they've got, you know, the three to five to six kid 
um, scenario, does that put a, um, another pressure on the marriage? Does it make it stronger? Does it make it weaker? What happens? Yeah, I've looked at that issue over the years. And to be frank, I have a lot of kids, so it's obviously a personal <laughs> interest to me. But um, I haven't seen kind of like a consistent finding about, you know, two versus three or four um, in terms of, you know, marital quality. And um, now in terms of marital stability, we do know when you've got younger kids in the household, you're less likely to get divorced. But that's, of course, a, a moment in time kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. I ha- and honestly, I haven't looked at kind of over time, like what's the sort of what we call the longitudinal story, you know, where you could track couples across you know, the life course. So I don't really know how <clears throat> the number of kids um, empirically relates. But I would certainly say, speaking from personal experience, that on, on, on the negative side, certainly there's, you know, there's more stress. Um, there's more, m- many more expenses um, when you have more kids, obviously. Um, a lot more chaos. Um, but on the positive side, you know, I would also say, too, that you know, I still feel quite young. I'm 53, mm-hmm. but I've got a, a 10-year-old in the house, our youngest kid. Um, and he's, you know, he's very sweet to my wife, especially. I was driving the kids to Catholic school one morning, you know, last year. I was voice texting my wife about something, probably about travel soccer or something like that. <laughs> very pedestrian, right? And before I could kind of basically end the, the text, he pipes in from the back seat, you know, between the sisters. I love you. I love you. I love you. So my wife is starting her work day, right, with this little message about probably travel soccer, you know, from her husband, you know, yada, 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 whatever. Um, and then there's this, I love you, I love you, I love you. And she knows, unfortunately, <laughs> right, because he's so affectionate at this stage in life anyways, and probably he'll change in, you know, a couple of years. But, you know, she knows and right away that's her, her youngest son. And that's the benefit, right, of having a lot of kids is that, you know, like you, you're going through life and, you know, there's a lot happening, but... You know, you know, here you are in midlife and um, you've got this sweet little kid who, who was, you know, very affectionate. And that's that's beautiful. There are a lot of people probably who are not married. There are a lot of single people. Um, I've got, I know several nieces, nephews, godchildren who are in their, you know, late 20s, early 30s. I mean, sometimes in the early 40s who are not married, but they want to be married sure, and yeah. they want advice. How what are they doing wrong and what should they be doing to find the perfect mate? And I, I should say the perfect mate, but to find a mate that they can live in a happily stable marriage. So one thing that I hear from women, this is true from women you know, who are more conservative as well as like progressive journalists who are writing for the New York Times, um, is that they feel like a lot of men are not marriageable in their social worlds. That they're just, they don't, they're not together. They, they're not kind of don't have a sense of ambition. They don't have a sense of, you know, or capacity for commitment. So I think part of the challenge for young men is to realize, look, you've got to kind of basically man up, get in physical shape, dress nicely, have a plan for your education and work, you know, um, that would be conducive to making you more marriageable. So that's something I would say to men. I also would say, ask her out. (laughs) Seriously, you have to ask her out. Like this woman you might meet at work or, you know, in the neighborhood or, whatever, through some social event or through church, whatever it might be, you've got to like take that initiative and women respect men who have the courage to ask them out oftentimes. Mm -hmm. And they also appreciate that they don't have to take on the the sort of all the, the load in the relationship. And that's sort of one mark of like, he's actually got some initiative. He can kind of like, you know, uh, take that. So women actually prefer, there's lots of evidence on this, that the guy would make the first move. So to men, the obviously advice here is like, ask her out. And then to women, I would say, like, give them a second or a third chance. Mm. You know, I gave a talk at AEI on Monday night down in Washington, D.C. for the book. And I mentioned the story of Arthur Brooks, the former president of AEI, is now at Harvard. And he kind of talks about how he, he met his wife kind of pretty randomly in Barcelona, of all places, when he was you know, traveling the world as a <clears throat> musician. 
and he you know confesses that she was initially i think pretty skeptical of him yeah um but he was very persistent and he's obviously a very charismatic person um and so eventually after two years they got married so to the women i would say you know give the guy if he just kind of there's just a remote chance that he might make the grade right you know give him a second third maybe fourth date you know and sort of just you know because it's it's worth kind of exploring the option if he seems like a good guy you know has that character then um you know, I would give them give them a chance. So that's part of what I would say to young adults. But I also would say too is that you know you've got to throw yourself into situations. It might be a young adult group at church. You know, it might be that Christmas holiday party that you're not feeling inclined to go to. I, a friend said that his daughter is working in Nashville, for instance, and she was invited to a Christmas party at the office by you know whatever a colleague. She's like, I don't really want to go to the office party for Christmas. Mm-hmm. And her her dad said, No, 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 you've got to go. <laughs> she went. And met some nice guy in the building, and now they're dating. So it's that kind of, you know, just being more pro-social. The final thing that I would just sort of say is that we've got to revive the matchmaker piece, right? So for those of us who are a bit older, you know, we've got nieces, nephews, younger colleagues here at work, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, um, or in our church community, for instance. We've just got to be a lot more, you know, nicely kind of aggressive about trying to match people up or encouraging people to take more initiative. So I might... Throw more parties. Yeah, you know, throw more parties. You know, picnics and things like All that. that stuff. Invite yes. multi-generational kinds exactly. of people. Um, we got to do more of that. You know, I actually, it was funny because I met my husband at a wedding. You know, of course, we both looked our best. But he, the first thing he said to me when he came up the aisle and somebody, and somebody um, introduced um, him to me, uh, a, a mutual friends, and he said to me, the first thing out of his mouth was, I'm just walking slow so I can meet you. And that so impressed me because in New York, he said that to you. He said that to at, me at the wedding. At the wedding. Oh my word! And that's see, that's that's the kind of boldness we need for more men, right? Yes, because what it said to me, New York is one of these places where guys say, "Oh, you know, hey, how you doing?" And enough, enough. And that was so. It was like he was saying to me, "Here's my heart. Do with it what you will." And that was like, oh my goodness, I've never heard that from before. But it's also before. bold, too. I mean, that's, very bold. You know, very that's, bold. That's, in, that's and, impressive. And I think that made the difference. But I see this in young people, in, and, and they're in their be- they're beautiful people. They're, I mean, some of them even have stable jobs, <laughs> but they don't, they don't seem to meet people. Totally. It's a huge problem. I'm one of, I think, the, one of the most sobering pieces. So I've been doing a lot of this work on marriage for the sake of the kids. I was raised mm-hmm. by a single mom. I just wanted to kind of basically, you know, look at the ways in which marriage, you know, family matter for, for children. But as I've been talking to UVA students, particularly younger women at UVA, there's just a kind of overwhelming sense among a good number of them that they can't find men who are interested in commitment and they're worried about their prospects for marriage. And these are all, you know, generally speaking, mm-hmm. women who've got, you know, great prospects and they sh- in a normal world, they should be doing fine. Right. And, and their experience is, as we know, representative of many women's experience uh, today. And so um, I'm predicting that about one in three young adults today in their 20s, early 20s will never marry. And we've kind of never oh. been in this you know, place before where there's so many kind of permanent birch- bachelors and permanent bachelorettes. That's really a shame, and and I, I know this is a sore subject with a lot of people because it's, a, it's such a it's such a cultural norm today. But having sex outside of marriage does that help or hurt your prospects for marriage? Um, wow, you're really hitting me with the hard hit questions. Um, so yeah, that's a great question. So um, what we know from the data is that more sexual partners 
are linked to um, lower quality marriages and to more divorce. And it seems like the story is true, not just for women, which is sort of like the old wisdom, right? You mm-hmm. know, but also for men. Um, and so I'm my thinking, grandmother was right. She was. Um, and I think, uh, I mean, this is evidence uh, from people like Galena Rhodes, who's a psychologist, and Scott Stanley, who's a psychologist, uh, Nicholas Wolfinger, who's a sociologist. Um, and these three scholars, for instance, kind of span the spectrum in terms of you know ideology. Um, so there's just a good bit of evidence that suggests that kind of basically moving slowly into a relationship, mm-hmm. both physically and emotionally, is typically this the smart move and that accumulating a lot of romantic or emotional or relationship baggage before you move into marriage is not the smart move and so a lot of americans don't appreciate that they should be more prudent about kind of how they start a relationship and sort of how they <clears throat> kind of proceed and what scott mm-hmm. stanley talks about this guy the psychologist at university of denver is that we should see more deciding rather than sliding when it comes to relationships. And what he means by that is a lot of folks just kind of like slide. They get to know someone a little bit. They kind of get together. They move in together. They might buy a couch, a pet together these days, (laughs) even a condo together. But they've never really had those serious conversations about kind of their future, where they want to live, where they want to work, how many kids they want to have, if they want to get married. And so then they end up being together for two or three or four years. And there's kind of like implicit pressure to slide into marriage. And not always a great move, right? So it was... The other model is where you're kind of deciding to um, move in, in terms of, sorry, to move together um, or to move towards marriage. And you're kind of just taking things a lot more slowly and deliberately. And couples who kind of have this more decisive approach to each of the steps in their relationship mm-hmm. and they talk about it and they work these decisions through together are more likely to be flourishing in their marriages. Very interesting. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Mary Eberstadt's book, um, Adam and Eve After the Pill, and she charts a lot of the problems we have today with marriage to the sexual revolution, that once you began um, normalizing sex outside of marriage, it changed the relationship between men and women, so men no longer felt obligated to even not only support the children that they bring into the world, but not even to have a relationship with them. Yeah, I think there's certainly a way in which kind of the availability of low commitment sex, you know, for the last couple of decades has certainly been one factor that's reduced the kind of commitment orientation of men and certainly made marriage less of kind of um, an imperative for young adults, both, you know, men and women. Um, So it's certainly part and parcel of why we're seeing less marriage today. Um, And again, I call this the closing of the American heart that, you know, we're just seeing 65% basically, you know, decline in the marriage rate um, since 1970, for instance. Um, And again, we're projecting that about one in three young adults today will never marry. And this is one of the factors, you know, um, that is fueling this move away from marriage in America. How do we how do we change that tide though? When all the, you're talking about the data show that the number one indication that a child will live in poverty if he is living or she is living with a single parent, uh, that they that, that the new haves and have nots. The divide really is whether there are two parent households. Right. And so just to be clear, the the story about kind of the, the top predictor of poverty kind of persisting through adulthood is a community story. So it's sort of basically saying is that people who are growing up in certain communities um, who are seeing a lot of single parents in their communities are more likely to stay poor as adults. But in terms of like, how do we turn this around? What I would say is um, a couple of things. One is we've got to figure out a way, and this is a huge challenge. I'm not particularly optimistic about it, at least right now, is we've got to figure out ways to kind of put these devices, you know, the smartphone I'm pulling right here, <laughs> um, in, you know, 
into their proper place. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they've accelerated a lot of the trends we're talking about today. Um, social media as well. Social media is part and parcel of that. Um, gaming is also part of that for, mm-hmm. for males. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got to figure out how to stop penalizing marriage for working class families, like I was talking about before. I think we also have to just kind of do a better story about marriage. I mean, a lot of Americans are getting this message from the elite liberal media and now from the online right, people like Andrew Tate, that marriage is a bad deal. For women, that's the left's sort of story oftentimes. And then now for men, that's this online right story. And say, no, no. Explain the online online right story out of this Andrew Tate guy. I mean, because I think this is just... Andrew Tate and Pearl Davis are two big uh, influencers on the right. Uh, They've got huge followings on Twitter and YouTube. And they're arguing that in Pearl Davis's words, marriage is a death sentence for men. And in Tate's view, that there's no return on investment, you know, for men when it comes to marriage. And this is driven in part by their perception that sort of old roles have broken down. And so men don't get much in the way of benefits, you know, when they're married. They don't get, there's no one, you know, making a sandwich for them or whatever, <laughs> um, or making their, you know, uh, dinner or whatever on a consistent basis. So they, they're, they're quite traditional in that sense. Um, but the most important issue for them is divorce. They think that most marriages end in divorce and that most marriages are ones where the guy is divorced unwillingly. Now, it is true that about 68% of divorces are initiated by women. So there are a lot of guys out there who have been divorced unwillingly. Um, But where they're wrong is, in part, is that most marriages today, and this is good news, um, go the distance. Mm -hmm. So one in two marriages about ended in divorce in the 70s and early 80s, at the height of the divorce revolution. Since then, divorce has come down. And that means practically that most marriages that are entered into today or recently um, will go the distance. I'm estimating that around probably 40% of couples will end up getting divorced. Um, But there are also ways to reduce the risk of divorce. So when it comes to, like, for instance, church going, couples who attend church together are between 30 and 50% less likely to end up getting divorced. So couples where the husband works stably, you know, where he's really kind of intent on being employed full time, you know, markedly less likely to get divorced. Um, couples of regular date nights, looks like, or spending a lot of quality time together, mm-hmm. have less divorce. So there are things you can do to kind of like, you know, minimize your risk of divorce in terms of investing in your relationship and being a part of a community that honors uh, marriage, like many religious communities. So what the online right, again, doesn't understand and appreciate is that, number one, most couples today don't end up getting divorced. And then number two, there are ways, including um, shared religious faith, where you can, um, you know, bring your risk of divorce down. You know, one of the greatest movies that I've I've seen about the beauty of marriage and um, the power of marriage and is the old Yours, Mine, and Ours, Henry Fonda, Lucille Ball. I don't know if you know that movie. He has ten kids. She has eight kids, and they get married. And he's in the military, and the sacrifices they give to the to the children in the marriage, and and it. It's a it's a sermon about marriage. But I think the one thing, what would be the one piece of advice you could give to young people today about finding the right mate, about when they should marry, how they know they should be married, married to that person? So um, the title, though, that you just, it's, what, what, it's yours. What's the title? Yours, mine, and ours. Yeah. So what's interesting is that one of the things that I find in the book is just that couples who have shared bank accounts are more likely to be flourishing than couples of separate accounts. And mm-hmm. just kind of one example of this sort of we before me mindset, and they're rejecting the me first mindset that I think too many people bring into marriage. And so if you kind of can cultivate this we before me mindset, family first orientation, you know, it's about us, not me. 
we, not me, um, you're more likely to be flourishing. So I think that's one thing to kind of bear in mind. But when it comes to kind of giving advice to young adults, I would just to say, say to them, look, you know, for most of us, nothing matters more than a good marriage. And when it comes to happiness, it's not sex, it's not money, it's not career, it's not education. It's a good marriage. That's that's the top predictor of happiness for you know Americans. And so you've got to kind of plan accordingly and recognize and realize that when you're in your 20s, you should be looking for a spouse if you want to get married. Um, if you meet a great person in college, there's no law that says you have to wait until 28 to get married. Right. You know, if your parents are telling you don't get serious in college, which a lot of parents you know tell their college kids these days, ignore them. Mm. You know, because of the fact that. So many young adults today are not going to get married. If you find a good person in college, stick you know, with it. Stick stick with that person. I got married at 24. We see kind of more generally, and I met my wife at UVA when we were undergraduates, seniors, or fourth years at UVA. Um, kind of getting married in your mid 20s actually is linked to the best marital happiness. Most people don't realize that. It is true that you know across the population at large, kind of getting married in your late 20s or early 30s is linked to a lower divorce risk. But couples, for instance, who attend church together and get married in their 20s do just fine, just as well. And then couples who don't cohabit, don't have a lot of different relationship you know, experiences before marriage, just directly get married in their 20s, also have a low risk of divorce as well. So, you know, again, kind of, I think just being intentional in your 20s about seeking out people, you know, who um, are of high character, you know, character is king in all this. And so, yeah, looks matter. Yes, humor matters, personality matter, you know, professional prospects matter. Um, but character should be king. In fact, one thing my wife confessed to me after we got engaged um, back in the mid-90s in Washington, D.C., the next day after getting engaged over lunch, she confessed that she thought that I wasn't particularly funny. Um, and so we, we, we joke about that a lot. You know, I'm not very funny, right? I'm, I'll acknowledge that. I'm a pretty serious person. But I had other you know, qualities, hopefully, that she appreciated. And we've been married 20 years, got a lot of kids, and going, you know, going strong. So... You know, just just kind of pick the things that are most important as you're looking for a, a potential mate, and um, if you find someone who's you know a person of high character, um, get married. Listen ad free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Amazon Prime members can listen ad free on the Amazon Music app, or just hit the follow button on your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much, Brad Wilcox. The book is called Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilization. Professor Brad Wilcox, thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Thanks, Lauren. It's good to be with you. And thank you all for listening. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.